the title of my message today is Run, Run, and you'll see why as we go through. It's not news to any of us that we're living in the middle of an epidemic of sexual immorality. Sexual purity seems to be an exception now rather than the rule. The idea that young people should still be virgins when they are married is laughed at by many as some quaint carryover from a simpler time. The television soap operas, which so many people watch, are a constant record, apparently, of one affair or one betrayal after another. The lives of media personalities and politicians show this same pattern of immorality. If you, if you ever talk to young people who are going through college or through school right now, you probably get the impression that a sizable portion of them are already sexually experienced. Some of this, of course, is just adolescent boasting, but most of it is not. Not anymore. Now, if we were to talk to people and ask them about their behavior, what would they say? What sort of answer would they be give us if we did some man-on-the-street type interview? Some people would undoubtedly say something like, well, it's my life, it's my body, and I can do what I like with my own body. Other people might say something like, well, sex is something that's natural. There's nothing dirty or unclean or wrong about it. There's no harm if, if you're doing uh, to, to another person. There's no harm in it. And if young people or, or other people who aren't married want to have sexual intercourse, what harm is there in that? Some other professing Christians, and sadly there are more and more of these this, these days, would defend an irregular, immoral lifestyle by saying something like this. Have you ever heard this? Well, I love Jesus in my heart. And I trusted him as my Savior. And I, I know there are things in my life that, that aren't right, but it's my love for Jesus that really matters. Even if we know these things instinctively, these answers are wrong, what are we to say in the face of such a culture, in the face of such pronouncements, bold declarations? It's helpful to realize as we think back to the first century that Paul was facing the exact same situation in the city of Corinth. That place was notorious for its immorality, as we've discussed before. But far worse than the immorality in the city was the fact that there was immorality inside the church among the professing people of God. There were professing Christian men who apparently were associating with temple prostitutes. And instead of being ashamed of this, they were adamantly defending their behavior, excusing themselves. And I think we'll find in this passage that it is relevant and it is helpful for us as believers in today's evil, decadent, immoral society. Because we'll see how Paul approaches this question in the second half of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, you know, Paul could have just started off by appealing to the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery, right? 
But the Corinthian Christians had some very sophisticated arguments, some defenses worked out. And the apostle is seeking to reach them by correcting at least three areas of misunderstanding. And this is where I want to go after this morning, these three areas of misunderstanding. So if you're taking notes, our three points today are going to be uh, a Christian view of human rights, a Christian view of sexual intercourse, and a Christian view of the human body. And the Corinthians got it wrong on all three of these areas. So let's talk, first of all, about a Christian view of rights. Paul begins in verse 12 this morning in our text by quoting two times a very popular slogan or catchword of the Christians in Corinth. That's why uh, you may see in your Bible translation that there are quotation marks around these slogans, these statements. All things are lawful for me. That was one of their favorite sayings. Everything is lawful. Everything is allowed. Everything is my right. Incidentally, Paul is just beginning to touch on here what is a very key issue in the mess, in the controversy at Corinth. This Greek word that's translated lawful here, the same word or its associated words, are going to happen 16 times between right here and chapter 11, verse 10. 16 times this word is going to come up. It's translated many different ways, but one of the key issues here between Paul and the Christians at Corinth was this question of, what are our rights? And their view was, we are free to do whatever we like. All things are lawful for me. Now, there's an element of truth in that from one perspective, right? They weren't, they weren't completely wrong because in Christ Jesus, they have been set free from many of the Old Testament ritual laws, um, many of the issues about food and purity and things like that. And Paul taught such freedom. Do you remember how he wrote over in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1? He said, for freedom... Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Paul was very strong on our freedom in Christ. But the Corinthians had taken this idea of freedom, this biblical truth of freedom, and they had misused it. And they're twisting it into something false, into something evil. And they're saying, like so many people do today, I'm a free person. I can do what I like with my own life. I can do what I like with my own body. We haven't heard that recently, have we? I can do what I like with my own time, with my own money. All things are lawful for me. If I want to go associate with these women up at the temple of Aphrodite, if I want to go and sleep with them, all things are lawful for me. How does Paul answer? Well, he says in the first place, it isn't your body. It isn't your life. We'll get to it at the end, but verses 19 and 20, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. As Christians, he's saying we don't belong to ourselves. We belong to Jesus Christ. He is our Lord. 
He is our master. He died for us on the cross. And in so doing that, he paid a huge price for our salvation, for our everlasting life. He gave his own body that he might own our bodies. As believers, we simply cannot say of anything that we are or anything that we have, this is mine. It isn't. It's his. It doesn't belong to us. It belongs to him. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price, brothers and sisters. You belong to Jesus. Well, does that mean we don't have any rights? No, not at all. But it means that our rights are controlled. And Paul here gives us two examples of such controls, two limitations on our freedom. Verse 12, look at it again. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. In other words, in Christ... I am free to do anything that is beneficial. Isn't that a wonderful thing? My master and your master gives me and gives you that freedom. He says to us, as his servants, you're free to do anything that's good for you, anything that is helpful, anything that is beneficial, anything that's helpful to yourself or to others. We're not free to harm ourselves, though, are we? We're not free to damage ourselves. We're not free to degrade ourselves. We're not free to hurt or to cheat other people. We don't have those rights. We're not free to destroy ourselves or to break people's hearts. Paul says you're free to do what is helpful, beneficial, good holy, helpful. The best freedom, the greatest freedom, the only true freedom, all things are lawful for me. Not all things are helpful. That's a qualification, isn't it? But there's a second. Look at the next part of the verse. All things are lawful for me. There's that expression again. But I will not be dominated by anything. Now there is... A pun here in the original language, there's a play on words. If I was going to to translate it very loosely so you can kind of see that, I might say something like this. All things are under my power, but I will not be overpowered by anything. You see the pun? That's That's the way it looks like in the original language. You know, a lot of people think that they're free. Oh, especially in America. A lot of people think they are free, but they're not free. They're addicted. Many people boast about their freedom to do whatever they like, but all the time they're held in a terrible slavery. They're enslaved, controlled by their appetites, their desires, their habits. That's not freedom. That's slavery. The people in the world who boast about their freedom, they don't even know what freedom is. They're not free to be good 
They're not free to be holy. They're not free to love. They're not free to be pure. They're not free to obey God. They're not free to honor God. They're not free to be a blessing to other people. They are controlled and mastered and enslaved by the world and the flesh and the devil. Rights themselves can be slavery. If I'm concentrating on my rights, how can I be free to respond to the will of my master? What if Jesus said to you, give up your rights? You know, so many Christians today are stressing their rights, my rights, my political rights, my civil rights. And, and, and don't get me wrong, those are their rights and their justice. But what if Christ says, give up your rights? You can be so enslaved by your rights that you're not free to listen to Jesus. You're not free to obey his calling or his will because we have to have our rights. Rights themselves can enslave us if they become the object that we worship. All things are lawful to me, but I will not be dominated by anything. No matter how good it seems, no matter how right it seems, only Christ can be my master. Here's a good guideline for us, by the way, when it comes to our money, when it comes to our work, when it comes to our friendships, our relationships, when it comes to how we spend our free time and leisure. We are free to enjoy all of these things but only if we control them, not if they control us. So Paul first lays out a Christian view of rights, of freedom. Our freedom in Christ is a freedom to serve, a freedom to obey, a freedom to become who He wants us to be. Our right is to be servants of Christ. We have an inheritance of heaven that's very different from the claim to rights that so many people make here on this earth. What rights do you and I have? The right and the freedom to obey our master, to bring him glory. That's your right. And nobody can take that away from you. Why should you want any others? The right to serve him, to love him, to witness about him, to suffer for him. That's the Christian view of rights. And Paul wants it to get, he wants to get it into the Corinthian psyche. And he wants to get it into ours too. Notice secondly though, a Christian view of sexual intercourse. There's an intriguing phrase in verse 13. It's another slogan. You see quotation marks again. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Now why does he bring that in, in the middle of a discussion about sexual morality. Well, he brings it in because it seems that this is another slogan that's used in Corinth that goes something like this. Hey, Paul, sex is just a natural thing. It's a natural function, like eating. It's just a function of the body. The stomach needs food, and the body needs sex. They're just the same. Food for the stomach the stomach for food, intercourse for the body, the body for intercourse. It's just a normal physical appetite. And Paul, you don't make 
too big a deal about food, right? You, you don't say you have to be faithful to one kind of food, right? You can eat whatever food you like. If you see another piece of food that you like more, you can stop eating that and go eat that. You don't have to get a license to be allowed to eat. You don't have to come to church, get up here, have a ceremony, and have people be able to say, from now on, you are free to go and eat. There are no rules, restrictions about eating, and there shouldn't be any rules and restrictions about sex. The Corinthians are saying, essentially, if we can eat what we like, we can sleep with whomever we like. What's the difference? The food for the stomach, the stomach for food. Why load us down with a guilt trip over something that's perfectly innocent, perfectly healthy, perfectly natural? What is wrong with you, Paul? These young people, they're just enjoying themselves. Why do you have to get all morbid and, and accuse them about such a natural thing? That's what the argument is. That was their view of sexual activity. Simple and natural as eating. And Paul says a couple of interesting things in response to this. Notice what he says. He says, first of all, that the illustration is completely wrong. You know, it's true that the stomach is for food. The stomach is, now I'm not a doctor, so I'll, I'll be corrected here by some of our medical people, but the stomach is essentially a bag inside of us that contains the nourishment we need while it's being slowly digested and processed through our body, right? It's a purely natural function. We share it with all other living things, animals alike. But from my point of view, my non-scientific, non-medical point of view, the stomach doesn't have a lot of other functions. It doesn't have a whole lot of other purpose. It doesn't have a whole lot of other reasons for existing other than to process the food that I eat, that you eat. It, that's its job. It doesn't, as far as I know of, have any other important job. It just exists to process. But Paul's saying that's not true about the body. The illustration's wrong. The body isn't just a machine for sexual intercourse. That's not the only function of the body. That's not the only reason for the body. It may be true that the stomach just exists for food, but the body doesn't just exist for intercourse. Look at verse 13. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. Or you could take it even further and say, the body is not meant just for sexual activity, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. To carry on Paul's argument there. The body has many functions, right? Many purposes, noble purposes, high elevated purposes, moral purposes. The body is the instrument by which we serve God. And glorify him. We do many, many things with the body. And so to say that the body is just like the stomach is wrong. It's not even factual. He goes on to say it's not true either to say that sexual intercourse is purely a physical, animal activity, as people say today, just like eating. Paul says that's degrading it 
It's debasing it. It's underestimating it. He says here intercourse is an expression of profound personal intimacy and unity. It's the coming together of two persons, two beings, the joining of two beings so that they become one. It's not like a couple of animals out mating in the street. Look at verse 16. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. You recognize this, don't you? This is marriage language. Genesis 2.24. This is, this is um, the coming together of two people, two minds, two hearts, two personalities, two char- not just two pieces of flesh. Paul says, no, no, no. You have a cheap, empty, animalistic, materialistic, brutal view of sexuality. It's far richer than that. Far nobler. Far more personal. You are depersonalizing it. You're treating a sexual partner as a thing or an object. But they're not. They're another human being. It's a union of persons. And so that's why he says in verse 15, look back at verse, shall I take then... Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! As believers, Paul's teaching us we are joined with our Savior personally, closely, forever. Not just in our souls, but our very bodies. Our very bodies are joined to Christ. Our very bodies are going to be raised from the grave because we're joined to Christ. Your body and mine are going to be taken up into heaven because we're joined to Christ. Our bodies are going to be glorified and made perfect because we are joined to Christ. Now, Paul says, Can I take this body of mine and join it closely, intimately, really intimately with someone who is an enemy of God on their way to hell? Can I join my body? Can I join my person with theirs? Can I take this body which Jesus died to save and give that body to a person who doesn't know him, who has no part with him. How can there be any real intimacy, any real unity between a child of God and someone who doesn't even know God? And by the way, especially younger people who are here this morning, this is one of the great reasons why you must never, ever think of marrying someone who's not a Christian. Because it means that you're joining together what shouldn't be joined together. And there is a terrible weakness in the very heart of your relationship from the very beginning when you do so. If you're a Christian, you are joined to Christ. 
And you cannot then join yourself to someone who is not joined to Christ. This is important teaching Paul is laying out. It is a lie to say that immoral, ungodly people have a more positive view of sex than Christians do. They know nothing about it. For people outside of Christ, intercourse is no more than an animal mating. It really isn't. When you hear a celebrity or someone famous talk about, oh, I was in love with this person, now I'm in love with that person. And I, was, I really loved them and we had a good time together, but now I, I, I think it's just time to move on and have a good time with this person over here. The truth is they don't even know the meaning of the word. It's lust. It's hormones. It's a drive. Like two animals seeing each other out in the field and coming together. And Paul here gives us a view of intercourse which is so beautiful and so noble and so healthy. The coming together of two people in a unity which, in which Christ Himself is intimately involved because they're both joined to Him. But I would say that the Christian husband and wife only can genuinely enjoy sexual intercourse as it was designed to be in the presence of Christ. A real unity in which He is involved. And it's a reflection of that deeper unity that we have with the Lord. Anyone who understands this and believes this with all their heart will not misuse their sexual impulses. The Christian view of sex is the coming together, close, personal bonding, that giving and self-giving of two people in joy and purity so they are no longer two, but one. How can you be one with someone who hates your God? Who despises your Savior? How can you be one with them? Paul's point is, you can't. You must not. A Christian view of rights, a Christian view of sexual intercourse, and then thirdly, a Christian view of the body. We've talked about this before, but the common idea in Paul's day amongst the Greeks was that the body was not of very much importance at all. We've talked about this before. The Greek philosopher Plato used an expression which was somasima, which meant the body is a tomb. Another Greek philosopher, Epictetus, said, I am a poor soul shackled to a corpse. In other words, what these Greek philosophers taught and what the society at that time believed, in fact, a lot of Christians struggled with this as well during Paul's day, is that the soul is what is important. That's the important part. The body, no importance. And the Corinthians were affected by this idea. Some of the Christians were saying things like, this body isn't important. doesn't matter. All Christ is interested in is our soul. So if I sin with my body... It's no big deal. 
God's not interested in my body. My body's just a piece of rubbish. It's just a piece of flesh. It's, it lives for a few years, and then it decays, and it's thrown away and forgotten about. My body doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if I sin with my body. It just matters about what's in my soul. And Paul says here that's a totally unbiblical view. God made the human body, and God made it for his own purposes, for his own glory, and God is interested in our bodies, and he is committed to our bodies. He's concerned about our bodies, and he has a purpose for our bodies. Look at verse 13 again. The body is not meant for something, but it is meant for who? The Lord. Your body's not a piece of rubbish. It's not a piece of flesh. It's not going to be junked, thrown away with the garbage. The body, your flesh and bones, they're meant for the Lord. Now, Paul could have referred to here the incarnation of Jesus Christ as a great argument, right? Jesus came down and took on a body. But he doesn't appeal to that. He chooses two other Christian facts to prove his point. Look at verse 14. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Friends, note this. He will raise us. Your body and mine will be raised in glory one day. Your body will exist in heaven forever. You're like, huh, not this body. <laughs> Don't worry. They're going to be changed, right? They're going to be made immortal, glorious, just like Jesus' own body. When Christ comes again, your soul and your body will be reunited. You're not going to be some disembodied spirit. You'll be a full human being, body and soul forever. He will raise our bodies. If we have weakness, if we have disease, if we have imperfections, if we have suffering... All will be taken away. Our bodies will be pure. Our bodies will be radiant and glorious. But they will be physical bodies. Glorified bodies, but physical bodies. In many respects, the same body we have now just changed. We'll be able to recognize each other in heaven, just as the disciples were able to recognize the Lord Jesus after his resurrection in his glorified body. Paul is saying, can I take this very body that one day is going to be in heaven and can I give it over to uncleanness? Knowing Christ, knowing his resurrection, knowing the destiny that my body has, can I give my body over to immorality? That's a contradiction of its destiny, of its purpose. Never. The Corinthians would answer, oh, but Paul, there's something you don't realize. Something you're forgetting. We are very spiritual people. You remember that? The Corinthians loved to talk about being spiritual. That was one of their favorite words, spiritual. The body doesn't matter to us anymore because we're living in the age of the Spirit. We're indwelled by the Spirit. We've been lifted out of the realm of the body. 
for this whole new time, Paul. You're going on and on about our bodies. But we're spiritual people. You're missing the point. What does the body have to do with superior beings like ourselves? But look at how Paul answers that argument in verse 19. It's totally devastating to the Corinthians. By the way, this is a verse that's often taken out of context. He says this to these people who are so proud of being spiritual. Or do you not know that your body, your body, think of this in the Corinthian context, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. The Spirit does not downplay the body. The Spirit honors the human body. The Spirit gives the body immense new significance. He takes up residence in our body. These Corinthians were saying, we are so keen on the Holy Spirit that we've got no time for the body. Paul is saying, the body is the Spirit's temple. And if you downplay the body, you don't know anything about the Spirit. To be spiritual doesn't mean ignoring the body or giving in to the body and its desires and its lusts. It's the exact reverse. To be spiritual means to honor the body, to treat our bodies with care and respect because God has chosen to make our bodies His temple. And friends, that is a marvelous and convicting truth. God the Spirit has chosen to make our bodies his temple. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back for our final song. While they're coming, just a couple final thoughts here in these last couple minutes to get you thinking about application as we go into our ABF classes here in just a little bit. You see how powerful Paul's argument is here, right? And you also see how relevant it is to the sexual addiction, the impurity of our age that we live in. And let me point out two very practical commands in the text as I close. One is in verse 18, one is in verse 20. The negative and the positive kind of sums up this whole thing. Verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. And it's a present imperative verb. That means it is a command that has continuous implication. You are to keep on running away all of your life from sexual immorality. When you see it, run for your life. It reminds us of Joseph, doesn't it? In Genesis 39, when Potiphar's wife entices him, tempts him to sexual immorality, he literally ran away from it. That's the best advice I can give you. The movies, the television programs, the magazines, print and online, your friends. Anytime there's any temptation around you, run from it. Don't hang around. Don't wait to see how much you might be tempted. Don't stay and pray that you won't be tempted. 
Run away from it. Run away from it. Run away from its dangers. Keep as far away as you can from sexual morality. That's the apostle's advice. Keep on fleeing from sexual immorality. Don't stop. And then in verse 20, the positive. So glorify God in your body. Now, we're not all blessed with good health. But as far as we can, Paul says, we're to keep our bodies pure and healthy and strong. And yes, we're to give them each day to our Savior. We're to remember that the Holy Spirit is inside us. We're to remember that our bodies are going to heaven. We're to resolve to do all that we can with the body God has given us to glorify Him through our bodies. You know, unbelievers sometimes say they feel sorry for Christians. They pity Christians. We miss out on all the fun, you know. But friends, what we miss out on from their perspective is not fun. What we're looking forward to is an eternity of pleasure, of joy, of satisfaction that they cannot even imagine. So that's it in a nutshell, friends. Flee immorality. Glorify God with your body. You say, that's hard in today's culture. Young person, you say, that's hard in today's culture. That's hard when I get on the internet, when I get on social media, when I get on TikTok, when I get on all the the apps that are out there. It's hard because it's all around me. And it's in the on-demand videos that I can access from my TV. It's all around me all the time. It's hard. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it's hard. That's why Paul says, keep on running away. Yeah, you may fall. Lots of us do. But you can be forgiven. You can get up and you can keep running away. And when, our, when we fear that our faith may fall, don't forget, Jesus will hold us fast. Jesus will help us persevere. Jesus will help us get all the way to the end of our race. It's not all on you. He's with you. His power to fight against sin is yours through the Spirit of God who lives inside of you. So you can keep running away, no matter how hard that temptation is.